When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the French History Podcast. My name is Gary Chauveau. Episode 12, Belgica, between Caesar and Germania. In our last episode, Caesar brought most of Celtica under his nominal control in 58 BCE. The tribes still had a great deal of autonomy as the Roman presence was limited and some tribes were unconquered, but it was clear that the Gauls were under Roman authority, and under Caesar specifically. This was cause for celebration in Rome, and Caesar was able to enjoy a winter holiday in Italy, basking in his own glory. However, not everyone was happy about this, least of all the Belgae. The Belgae were a proud people who had resisted the Germans and Gauls to form their own identity, But now, they looked south at their Gaelic cousins who had come under Roman power and realized that they would almost certainly be attacked by them in the near future. Belgica was a complex land to say the least. On the one hand, the Belgae were caught between the Germans to the east and the encroaching Romans to the south. It's hard to say who the Belgae preferred, though the correct answer is probably neither. As Caesar conquered Celtica, an internal struggle broke out between the Belgae over what they were going to do next, with some wanting to unite with the Germans to go to war with Rome, and others wanting to make peace with Rome so that they could continue to hold off the Germans. Rome must have been more foreign to the Belgae, as they were used to the Germans, both as trading partners and as frequent rivals. But a significant minority believed that Germany was the greater evil, as evidenced by the fact that Ariovistus had been invited into Celtica by the Arverni and Sequani, and once there had brutally suppressed the Sequani. As such, an internal struggle broke out between the Belgae, but soon it was clear that the anti-Roman camp won the day and ousted the pro-Roman leaders. Early in 57 BCE, the Belgae traded hostages and entered into a pact to face Rome. At least, this is what Caesar accounts. It's hard to say what is truth and what isn't with Caesar. What we do know is that the Belgae were amassing a large army. But was this army to invade Celtica and push out the Romans, as Caesar says? Or was it a purely defensive force? We'll never know. What we do know is that Caesar raised two more legions, without the permission of the Senate, and marched to the border of Belgica. As he approached, ambassadors from the nearest tribe, the Remi, marched out to meet Caesar, begging for leniency and telling him the Belgae allied with the Germans against Rome. They told him that the Belgae and Germany had around 300,000 armed soldiers, a clearly inflated number on Caesar's part. 
Regardless of how large the enemy was, Caesar took the Belgae threat seriously. He ordered Davidiacus, leader of the Adwai, to ravage the Belgae lands so that the Belgae would be forced to disperse their forces in order to gather food. Meanwhile, Caesar took his force across the Ain River and made a fortified camp. In response, the Belgae army sieged the Remy town of Bibrox, hurling stones at the ramparts and assaulting the gates, though without proper siege equipment their efforts were only so effective. Nonetheless, the overwhelming numbers meant the town would fall eventually, unless Caesar did something. At this point, Caesar notes that he had a large army with people from across the Mediterranean world, including Numidians, Beleriands, and Cretans. On the one hand, this meant that he had a diverse army with many different specialties, but beyond that, I think it is a truly incredible thing that at this time, when Rome's enemies were a largely homogenous group of Celts or Germans, Caesar's army included Europeans, Africans, and even some Asians from Anatolia. It must have been truly strange for the brown-skinned, desert-dwelling northern Africans to march through the cold, snow-packed woods of northern Belgica. Perhaps this sight was just as strange to him as to the Belgae, the sight of peoples that they had never seen before, lined up by the hundreds to face them, might have been for them. After some brief skirmishing between the two armies, Caesar retreated to his camp, while the Belgae made their own camp. After some brief skirmishing between the two armies, Caesar retreated to his camp, while the Belgae made their own camp two Roman miles from his. The two sides engaged in cavalry harassment, but days passed before the two armies assembled for battle. The battle could hardly be called that, as the armies were flanked by a marsh and neither could maneuver easily, so the Belgae and Romans retreated. At this point, the Belgae abandoned their harassment of the Romans and decided to plunder more Remy territory. Caesar chased after the Belgae and assailed them as they tried to cross a bridge. In response, the Roman soldiers were assaulted by an immense rain of projectiles, which pushed most of them back, though a few marched over the bodies of their fallen comrades in pursuit of the Belgae. This proved to be a major strategic victory for Rome, even if tactically the battles were indecisive. This proved to be a major strategic victory for Rome, even if tactically the battles were indecisive. Caesar was a true general who had long supply lines to keep up the morale and health of the army, while meanwhile the Belgae were relying on their overwhelming forces to plunder Celtica. The Romans successfully denied them the ability to pillage, which forced the Belgae to return to their own country or face starvation. Caesar records that the Belgae all fled in a disordered rush, as each tried to make their way home as quickly as possible. Caesar, incorrectly sensing a trap, kept his forces in camp until the following day his scouts confirmed that indeed the Belgae armies were haphazardly flooding back into Belgica. Thus, Caesar sent out his own cavalry and legions and slew much of the retreating Belgae, though the greater part escaped. With the Belgae scattered, unable to consolidate their forces due to a lack of food, Caesar went on the offensive and sieged the Belgae town of Noviodunum. At first, the Belgae held due to their deep trenches and heavy fortifications. 
In response, Caesar engaged in one of the first of many incredible military feats, winning a battle by using superior Roman engineering. At this point, it's worth noting that despite Roman propaganda, Rome was not technologically superior to the Celts in every way. The Celts were better metalsmiths, as seen in their beautiful ornamentation and coinage, and by far they were the better sailors, as they sailed the open ocean rather than the relatively calm Mediterranean. But if there was one technology the Romans possessed which was far superior to anyone else on their borders, it was their engineering prowess, and Caesar used his military engineers to full advantage. At Noviodunum, he ordered massive siege towers to be constructed, which rolled on wheels up to the walls of the town, loaded with troops. Just the sight of these towers cowed the Belgae inside to surrender, and their king surrendered two of his sons as hostages. Caesar then marched to a town called Bratispantium, taking it without a fight, due to his enormous army, which could move together again because of his steady supply lines, while the Belge army were divided and had returned each to their own lands. After taking hostages, Caesar conquered yet another Belge tribe as they fell like dominoes. Here, Caesar was getting deep into Belge territory and approached a tribe known as the Nervi. The Nervi had a deep-seated hatred of Rome and forbid their imports, particularly wine, I know, the barbarians, because they believed that Roman luxury was corrupting. As Caesar approached, the Nervi assembled three other tribes to meet him. The two sides camped on opposite sides of the river Sabus, staring each other down, each from a hill on their side. Caesar had perhaps 42,000, while the enemy had around 75,000 at maximum. More than the Romans, but not overwhelmingly. Caesar learned from his spies that among the surrendered Belgae were those who still hated Rome and who told the Nervi about Roman column formation. The Romans would put their baggage in between each legion, rather than their entire baggage at the back, as a means of protection. Thus, the Nervi planned on attacking a baggage train. Furthermore, the Nervi were famous for their fortifications, which would disrupt a neat Roman column should Caesar try to attack. In response, Caesar placed the entire baggage behind his army so that his six legions faced the enemy. Meanwhile, his cavalry crossed the river and skirmished with the Nervi cavalry, confirming their location. Caesar hunkered down and intended to outlast the Nervi, as he had outlasted so many enemies before, but the Nervi wouldn't give him that chance. Suddenly, the Nervi exploded from the forest, rushing like a tidal wave against Caesar's forces. They forced the Roman cavalry to retreat, then crossed the river, where they ran up the hill toward the Roman fortifications. On the one hand, this probably left them slightly tired, but on the other, they were able to attack the legions before they could get into formation. The attack was so sudden that the Nervi struck while some Romans were either working on the fortifications or out collecting wood for the camp. Caesar might have been overrun, and his incredible life cut short there. However, these were veteran soldiers, and Caesar made sure to keep his lieutenants with their units, 
so that when the nervi struck, each Roman unit assembled for battle. Thus, when the nervi attacked, the Romans rallied to whichever standard was closest rather than to their own assigned camp. This incredible coordination demonstrates how the Romans had developed a professional army, unlike the tribal configurations they faced, as here were people from all across the Mediterranean, speaking different languages, belonging to different tribes, races, and ethnicities, and yet they could all be organized into a cohesive unit at a moment's notice when the battle began. The one advantage the Nervi had was surprise, but the disciplined Romans were prepared, meaning that the tired, unorganized masses of Belgae forces met with the fresh, organized Romans who held the high ground and stood behind fortifications. The Belgae left wing collapsed rapidly, and the Romans chased the Atrebates tribe to the river, slaughtering them. Yet, a number of Belgae got into the Roman camp causing a panic and leading some Romans to flee, believing all was lost. The following was a slaughter. The Romans knew they couldn't flee in the tight conditions, while the Nervi, seeing the Roman left flank at the river, knew their escape route was blocked. With no escape for either side, it was kill or be killed. It was said that the Romans, even while dying, leaned on their shields, pushing back the Nervi, while the Nervi stood on their own dead as they hacked at the Romans before they were eventually surrounded and slaughtered. The result was a decisive, if costly, victory for the Romans. The Nervi were almost driven to annihilation, which scared other Belgae tribes from fighting Caesar and showed Rome's might extended far beyond its own territory. On the devastation of the Nervi, Caesar recounts, this battle being ended, and the nation and name of the Nervi being almost reduced to annihilation, their old men sent ambassadors to Caesar by the consent of all who remained, and surrendered themselves to him, and in recounting the calamity of their state, said that their senators were reduced from six hundred to three, that from sixty thousand men they were reduced to scarcely five hundred who could bear arms, whom Caesar, that he might appear to use compassion toward the wretched and the suppliant, most carefully spared, and ordered them to enjoy their own territories and towns, and commanded their neighbors that they should restrain themselves and their dependents from offering injury or outrage to them. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. But not all the Belgae were willing to submit just yet. The Attawatakai tribe removed themselves from all their lands and concentrated into one massive fortress to resist the Romans. Yet again, when Rome approached with siege towers, this Belge tribe sued for peace, claiming only divine favor allowed for such marvels to appear. To show they willingly surrendered, the Attawakai threw their weapons over the walls until they were as high as the walls themselves, 
and the gates were opened. But the Ottawatakai didn't get rid of all their weapons. They hid a number of arms in wicker baskets, enough for 4,000 soldiers. They waited for Caesar to enter with his negotiators and surprise him. Unfortunately for them, Caesar didn't just enter with his negotiators, but a number of his elite guard, who resisted the sudden onrush until the rest of his soldiers rushed into the town. Because of this, Caesar showed them no mercy and sold off 53,000 of their people into slavery, decimating the Ottawatakai. Thus, Belgica was largely subdued. Meanwhile, Caesar was informed that a number of tribes that bordered the Atlantic in western Gaul were subdued by his lieutenants. Caesar's victories were so great that Germans from across the Rhine sent ambassadors to him. But Caesar bid them wait, return to Italy, and declared 15 days of thanksgiving for his continued conquests. The following year, 56 BCE, Caesar ordered Servius Galba to occupy eastern Gaul, opening up a trade route from the Alps into that region. One night, two Gaelic tribes sent forth their armies to occupy two mountains overlooking the single Roman legion in their area. They resented Rome for taking hostages, which humiliated them, and they believed that by opening up the pass, Rome wanted to claim permanent control of Gaul which, to be fair, was not inaccurate. Having to choose between abandoning their supplies and fleeing, or staying and waiting for reinforcements, the Romans waited as the two armies watched them from the nearby mountains, cutting off an easy retreat path. On a signal, the Gaelic armies charged down upon the Roman camp. The Romans fought bravely, and with deadly force, moving to whichever part of the fortifications needed aid. But the Gauls had incredible numbers and could replace their tired forces with new ones, while the Romans were so hard-pressed that even the injured were told to keep fighting. After six hours of fighting, the Romans became exhausted and even their weapons were breaking. Without any hope of holding them off, Galba ordered a retreat. Yet fortune sided with the Romans, as the Gauls believed they had won the camp with the Romans in full retreat. Seeing that many Gauls were now trapped within the camp, Galba swung his legions back and slaughtered a large number of them while causing the rest to flee. But Galba didn't trust a second miracle to happen, as he burned the camp and retreated, only to take the pass later with fresh reinforcements. Meanwhile, the Veneti tribe, who lived in modern-day Brittany in the northwest of Gaul, and who were accustomed to sailing back and forth to Britannia, raised the surrounding tribes in revolt against Rome. Caesar left eastern Gaul to Galba while he ordered ships built on the Loire River and sailed them out along the coast towards the Veneti lands. Realizing Rome was marching towards them, the Veneti bunkered down in their harsh, cold, rocky land. It was even colder than it is today, especially in winter, and would be akin to Norway in our own time meaning that there was little food to be foraged. The Veneti believed that their ships could hold up any sea invasion and their towns could withstand a short siege. Without much nearby food, the Veneti were counting on Caesar's army being unable to hold a prolonged siege. 
The Veneti believed that their ships could hold off any sea invasions and their towns could withstand a short siege, which would be all Caesar would be capable of due to the lack of food all around him. Still, the Veneti were worried enough that they called for aid from Britannia. When describing their towns, Caesar recounts, The sites of their towns were generally such that, being placed on extreme points of land and on promontories, they neither had an approach by land when the tide had rushed in from the main oceans, which always happens twice in the space of twelve hours, nor by ships, because upon the tide ebbing again, the ships were likely to be dashed upon the shoals. Thus, by either circumstance, was the storming of their towns rendered difficult, and if at any time perchance the Veneti, overpowered by the greatness of our works, had begun to despair of their fortunes, bringing up a large number of ships, of which they had a very great quantity, they carried off all their property, and betook themselves to the nearest towns. There they again defended themselves by the same advantages of situation. They did this the more easily during a great part of the summer, because our ships were kept back by storms, and the difficulty of sailing was very great in that vast and open sea, with its strong tide and its harbors far apart and exceedingly few in number. Even though the Romans could defeat the Veneti easily in a direct fight, the Veneti were not going to engage them. While the Veneti were not the best warriors and were few in number, the terrain and their affinity for sailing made them difficult to subdue. While Caesar did have a number of ships, keep in mind these were Mediterranean-style ships, not Atlantic ones, and were not adapted to the tumultuous ocean. As Caesar recounts, their ships were built and equipped after this manner. The keels were somewhat flatter than those of our ships, whereby they could more easily encounter the shallows and the ebbing of the tide. The prows were raised very high, and in like manner the sterns were adapted to the force of the waves and the storms. The ships were built wholly of oak, and designed to endure any force and violence whatever. The benches, which were made of planks a foot in breadth, were fastened by iron spikes of the thickness of a man's thumb. The anchors were secured fast by iron chains instead of cables, and for sails they used skins and thin-dressed lever. These were used either through their want of canvas and their ignorance of its application, or for this reason, which is more probable, that they thought that such storms of the ocean and such violent gales of wind could not be resisted by sails nor ships of such great burden be conveniently enough managed by them. The encounter of our fleet with these ships was of such a nature that our fleet excelled in speed alone and the plying of the oars. Other things, considering the nature of the place and the violence of the storms, were more suitable and better adapted on their side. For neither could our ships injure theirs with their beaks, so great was their strength, nor on account of their height was a weapon easily cast up to them and for the same reason they were less readily locked in by rocks. Thus, while Roman ships were lighter and faster, Atlantic ships could brave the oceans and navigate rocky coasts. Mediterranean ships used oars, while Atlantic ships relied more on the wind. 
Despite this disadvantage, Caesar believed that proper positioning and sheer numbers could overcome them. He embarked his fleet and eventually encountered 220 Veneti ships, which met him for battle. While the Veneti ships were better suited to the rocky coasts, they didn't know how the Romans fought and were unaware of the Roman strategy of hooking enemy ships and boarding them. Fortune favored the Romans, and the wind died, allowing the oar-driven Mediterranean ships to outmaneuver and slaughter the Veneti. With their main fleet destroyed, most of the Veneti surrendered. In order to bring the rest of the Veneti to heel, Caesar hired a Gaul to pretend to desert to the remaining holdouts, telling them that Caesar was weak and looking for peace. Thus, the remaining Veneti assembled an army and engaged in a forced march out to meet the Romans. When the Veneti finally saw the Romans, they must have had a serious oh crap moment as the massive Roman army was waiting in full battle formation to face the tired Veneti. The result was a slaughter, and all of Brittany surrendered to Caesar. But Caesar's year wasn't quite over. The Moreni and Menapi, the northernmost Belge tribes, remained in revolt. Seeing that large armies failed, they decided to fight a guerrilla war against the Romans, using their forests to slip in and out of battle. In response, Caesar cut down the forests, burned the villages, and seized the cattle. When a bad winter storm came, Caesar was content to let the Belge warriors starve and freeze to death while he and his men marched south that winter. Caesar's tactics were often brutal, as he killed tens of thousands of people in those two years and sold just as many into slavery, devastating the population. While this brought them under Roman authority, it meant that the Belge tribes were now helpless against the superior German forces. Caesar put Rome in quite a predicament by winning this short-term victory. He pulled down the dam that kept the Germans out. And next year, he will have to face the monster he let in and fight against a new German threat. Oh, wait a minute. Wait. Stop the music. Stop the music. We're not quite done yet. Remember how I mentioned that Aquitania was largely unimportant and wouldn't figure into our story? Well, here's my one mention of them. While Caesar conquered the Veneti, his subordinate, Publius Licinius Crassus, conquered Aquitania. Publius was the son of the triumvir Marcus Licinius Crassus. At the time, he was in his late 20s, and so was too young to formally receive a military office from the Senate. But at this point, the triumvirs were just ignoring the Senate's rules. Publius was sent by his father to Gaul in order to learn soldiering and carry on the Crassus legacy. And by all accounts, the conquest of Aquitania was meant to be the first in a long, illustrious career. So... While Aquitania is going to fall out of our narrative for quite a while, remember the name Publius Licinius Crassus, as he will come up again in our story. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support.
Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.